As we walk our way through the book of Luke, we are still this morning in chapter 4. Lord willing, we will finish out chapter 4 this morning. And if you would, turn there to that chapter and to the 31st verse, and we'll begin reading there in just a few moments. Luke 4, 31 through 44. Father, we pray this morning that you would test our thoughts and our attitudes in the radiance of your purity. Help us see ourselves in the light of Christ, both as we compare ourselves to him and see how far we fall short, and as we see how much he loves us in spite of ourselves. God, we pray that as a result of what you say to us, the light of Christ might be seen today and this week as we love others and perform deeds of faith in you. And God, help us to be those who will speak on your behalf for others and to others as well. Help us now, speak to us now. Words of power that can never fail. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The final 14 verses here in Luke chapter 4 are really a a compilation of a handful of different events and encounters that all took place during these early days of Jesus' ministry. And they all took place here in in the fishing village called Capernaum which is on the Sea of Galilee, not far from Jesus' hometown. He's moved from Nazareth now to Capernaum, and all these things take place in that single village. And so instead of looking over each of these brief accounts and encounters one by one, as we normally might do uh, in in a series of sermons, we're going to take them all together this morning. All the events that Luke records here, Jesus teaching, Jesus healing, Jesus befriending, Jesus exercising, demons, and so on. Uh, This is a fairly typical day in Jesus' normal ministry routine, and we're going to look at it all at once this morning. And because it seems to have all happened in a one 24-hour period, uh, you might think of this little section of Luke as a day in the life of Jesus, a day in the life of Jesus of Nazareth. That's what we find here. This is what Jesus' life looked like on many a passing day and on many a passing Sabbath day as he would teach and visit and befriend and heal and so on. So just look with me at a typical day, a typical Sabbath day in the life of Jesus, our Savior. And he came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were amazed at his teaching, for his message was with authority. In the synagogue, there was a man possessed by the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Let us alone. What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in the midst of the people, he came out of him without doing him any harm. And amazement came upon them all. And they began talking with one another, saying, What is this message? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the report about him was spreading into every locality in the surrounding district. Then he got up and left the synagogue and entered Simon's home. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked him to help her. And standing over her, he rebuked the fever, and it left her. And she immediately got up and waited on them. While the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases, brought them to him, and laying his hands on each one of them, he was healing them. Demons also were coming out of many, shouting, You are the Son of God! But rebuking them, he would not allow them to speak, because they knew him to be the Christ. When day came, Jesus left and went to a secluded place, and the crowds were searching for him, and came to him and tried to keep him from going away from them. But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also. For I was sent for this purpose. So he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. You thought you were busy. Jesus' schedule 
here is absolutely astonishing. On the Sabbath morning, Saturday morning, Jesus finds himself at the synagogue in Capernaum giving the morning sermon. And I can attest to you that that by itself sometimes is more emotionally exhausting and even physically exhausting than a five-mile run. I go home every week and just crash after my duties here. And that's what Jesus did. And then on top of that duty that morning, there's the hubbub caused by this demon-possessed man and Jesus exercising of the demon and then the subsequent buzz that it created in the community. And then follow that with a trip to Simon Peter's house for lunch and tea and all those things and another healing. And we could all imagine by this point in the day, Jesus, who is fully human, just like us, must have been well worn out by the time late afternoon rolled around and he had been busy all day long. But far from getting his Sabbath nap, as evening came in verse 40, we find that word had gotten out into the streets of Capernaum that a miracle worker was staying at Simon's house. And so Jesus found himself in verse 40 with an entire hospital ward's worth of people filing in before him, requesting and receiving his help. And the patients at the psychiatric ward were coming too with all of their demonic perplexities and bizarre behaviors and spiritual darkness, and they were all receiving Jesus' attention as well. And when we get to the end of the section, we realize that Jesus must have worked and taught and touched and healed and befriended and loved well into the nighttime hours, perhaps into the wee hours of the morning. In fact, Luke never even tells us whether Jesus got any sleep at all that night. He simply jumps from Jesus healing and casting out demons in verse 40 as the sun was setting. And then in verse 41, the same thing. And then in verse 42, day comes all of a sudden. Maybe Jesus got some sleep that night, but Luke might be hinting to us that he never even got to go to sleep, that he simply loved and healed and taught all the way through the night. And the very next thing we see in verse 43 is him getting up early on Sunday morning and leaving the city to go and repeat that routine in the other cities also. That's a day in the life of Jesus of Nazareth. And we should just stand back and wonder at the energy that he put forth in the Lord's service. And as we stand back and wonder, there are numerous paths that our discussion could take. In fact, there are at least four avenues down which we ought to take at least a little stroll this morning. Four things we ought to notice about this typical day in the life of Jesus. And I want to give them to you and then come back and focus in on just two of them. Four things, though, that you should notice here. Four things I hope that you already did notice. First, you should notice the source of Jesus' strength. The source of Jesus' strength. How did Jesus, who was fully human just like we are, make it through such a long, taxing day and then get up the very next morning and go to another place by foot in order to do it all again? And how did he do that day after day after day for three years without just wearing out emotionally, physically, spiritually? Well, Luke gives us a hint in verse 42 when he informs us that after a long, hard day and night of ministry, when day came, Jesus left and went to a secluded place. Why is that there? Why did Jesus go to a secluded place? Luke doesn't fill in the rest of the story, but if you turn over to the Gospel of Mark when you get home today, you'll find this same day in Capernaum talked about in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. And Mark talks in more detail about what happened that day. He gives a longer account and more detail. And when he comes to what Luke says in verse 42 here, Mark expands on what Luke says and tells us why Jesus went away to a secluded place. This is what he says in Mark 1.35. In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went to a secluded place and was praying there. He went to a secluded place and was praying there. That's significant that Mark adds that. After this long, exhausting day of spiritual and physical need, Jesus is saying by his actions of going away by himself, my spiritual and physical stamina does not mainly lie in a set amount of sleep. It doesn't mainly lie in a healthy diet or in an exercise routine, as helpful as all those things are. But the source of Jesus' stamina, 
both spiritual and physical, was his regular private communion with God. The fact that he would go off, verse 42, to secluded places, as Mark tells us, to meet with his father. But since we're studying Luke, and since Luke gives this only passing mention here, I'm going to leave that for your further consideration. But consider it. The source of Jesus' strength, the way he kept going, was communion with his father regularly. The second thing that we should notice in the course of Jesus' arduous day in Capernaum is the secret of Jesus' identity. The source of his strength and then the secret of his identity. That is, we should notice, and many of you probably already did notice as we read this morning, the odd fact that Jesus did not seem to want anyone to know who he was. At least not yet. Did you notice that? First in verse 34, that this demon who apparently could see things that humans cannot see, said, I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. And instead of congratulating the demon for his theological acumen, instead of encouraging the crowds to listen to the demon and saying, he may be a demon, but he's got it right. Instead of doing those things, Jesus quickly shut the demon's mouth. Why? Not because Jesus wasn't the Holy One of God, for of course that is who he was and who he is this day. So why did Jesus shut the demon up in verse 34? And why did he do it again in verse 41? Where the demons there were crying, you are the Son of God. But rebuking them, he would not allow them to speak because they knew him to be the Christ. They're saying the right thing. You're the Holy One of God. You're the Son of God. You're the Christ. Why does Jesus shut them down? It's an important question. Wouldn't it have been to Jesus' advantage if everyone knew and believed what these demons knew and believed? Namely, that he was the Holy One of God, that he was the Son of God, that he was the Christ? Wouldn't that have been to Jesus' advantage? Well, apparently not. At least not yet. You may wonder about that. Why did he want to keep this a secret? I think the best answer is that just as we said last week, as Jesus uh, hometown folks in his, in his hometown of Nazareth as they tried to take him up to the brow of a hill and kill him there. We said last week there was a hill on which Jesus had to die, but the hill in Nazareth was not that hill. Verses 28 through 30. So I think we can say about these demonic pronouncements, there was a time for Jesus' identity to be fully revealed to the people of Israel, that he was the Holy One, that he was the Son of God, that he was the Christ. There was a time for that to be revealed, but the synagogue in Capernaum that day was not it. That wasn't the right time. Because Jesus was to die for our sins in a certain place, at a certain time, in a certain way, and at the hands of certain people. And if word got out about him too quickly, particularly if word got out about him being the Son of God and the Messiah of Israel, if that got out too quickly then the gears of God's perfect timing might have had a wrench thrown into him, into them. The murderous crowds may have gathered much more quickly than they eventually did had Jesus not been so cautious early on about his identity. Presumably, that's why the demons were so eager to announce Jesus' identity. Because they wanted to throw a wrench in the plan. They wanted to speed things up and mess things up. And presumably, that's why Jesus was so eager to keep them silent. Jesus had to die at an appointed time and place, three years down the road in Jerusalem on a cross, and not a moment sooner, and not in any other way. So when you read the Gospels and you find Jesus again and again seeming to hide his true identity, at least now maybe the puzzle pieces will fit a little bit better together. Thirdly, as we read about Jesus' amazing day of ministry in Capernaum, we cannot help but notice the signs Jesus did. So the source of his strength, the secret of his identity, now the signs that he did, the miracles that he did. These weren't the first miracles that Jesus had performed, but they are the first ones that Luke tells us about. And they are likely the first miracles of this kind that these people in Capernaum had ever seen. And so we can imagine why in verse 36 they are so astonished, why amazement came upon them all. They'd never seen anything like this before. And you can imagine... This morning, if any one of these kinds of things that happened that day in Capernaum happened here, what if during the course of our Sunday service, someone stood up and began wailing like a a demon-possessed person and someone else in the audience stood up and rebuked the demon and it went out of them and threw them on the ground and then they were all of a sudden gone from 
crazy we need to lock this person up to in their right mind. You'd never forget March 22nd, 2009, would you? You may not remember the date, but you would be filled with amazement. Maybe with fear, maybe with wonder, but you would never forget it. And these people never forgot it. Or what if... As we, we were fellowshipping together, some of you were eating lunch together in someone's home today. Someone was sick, and one of us came in and prayed for that person, and immediately they got up and were well. You'd never forget that. You'd be amazed. And that's the way it was at Capernaum. A demon was cast out in the middle of the morning worship service in verses 33 through 35. Simon's mother went from a pale, clammy, shivering lump of sickly flesh to a bright, bustling hostess in the blink of an eye, at the words of Jesus. And then both of those scenes, the healing of the sick and the exercising of demons, are repeated again and again and again and again and again, all throughout the night in verses 40 through 41 in the town of Capernaum. None of us have ever seen a day quite like this, I don't think. None of us have ever seen the power of God manifest so often over and over again in a single day. Perhaps we've seen one of these kinds of things happen and we could hardly believe our eyes. But we may read these verses this morning with miracle after miracle after miracle. We may read this with a tinge of suspicion or perhaps with just a lack of feeling simply because the signs and wonders here are so many and we've never seen these kinds of things happen ourselves. But don't read this with suspicion and don't read this with a lack of feeling, just going, oh, well, this is the way it always was, you know. This is, this is nice. I mean, this is the book of Luke and we're going to see lots of miracles. No. These are eyewitness accounts. We need not be suspicious. And we need to ask God to help put us in the scene and help us believe and be amazed ourselves that Jesus has this kind of power. We need to be amazed at the power and the might that we see in the signs Jesus performed. And fourthly, we need to take notice in these final verses of Luke 4, the sermons Jesus preached. The signs he performed and the sermons he preached. You may say to yourself, there are very few red words here on the page. I don't see any sermons that Jesus preached. Well, we don't have the content of his sermons, but we have the fact of his sermons a couple of times in this chapter. And Luke uses the words, teaching and preaching both to describe Jesus' activities that day and the days subsequent in Capernaum and the other villages. Sometimes we use the words teaching and preaching to refer to two slightly different things, and that can be right. They overlap, but they're slightly different. But here it seems to me that Luke is using those two words interchangeably, and I'm going to do the same. So then, notice Jesus' preaching and or teaching. And notice particularly in verses 31 and 32 that Jesus' brief stay in Capernaum began with preaching, with teaching, verses 31 and 32. And then notice also that his time in Capernaum, his busy day in Capernaum, came to a close in verses 43 and 44 also because he wanted to go to the other cities and do more preaching and teaching. Preaching was a key but often, at least by modern observers, overlooked part of Jesus' ministry on earth. And you'll notice as you read these verses that Jesus really was the prince of preachers. We sometimes label that on great preachers in world history, but Jesus is really the prince of preachers. Because all through the gospel accounts, we find that people reacted to Jesus' sermons in just the same way as they reacted here in Capernaum, in verse 32. Namely, they were amazed at his teaching, for his message was with authority. In another place in the book of Matthew, it says they were amazed at his teaching because his message was with authority and wasn't like their teachers. It wasn't like their scribes. There was something different here. In other words, Jesus wasn't just a good speaker. He wasn't just eloquent. He hadn't just mastered a craft. He spoke with power from on high. There was something about Jesus preaching whether he was telling people that they were going to die and go to hell, or whether he was dazzling them with word pictures and stories, or whether he was telling them how much God loved them, whatever it was, there was something about Jesus preaching that struck people to the very core of their being and made them sit up and listen and changed them. They knew instantly that he was speaking from God. 
And I would just say to you, oh, how we need that kind of preaching today. Oh, how we need men who will stand up and speak, and not because they're eloquent, or not because they shout, or not because they have mastered a craft, but simply when they open the Bible and speak from it, people will know he is speaking from God. There is authority, there is power there that's not his, it's God's. And we need to beseech God to grant us these kinds of men. You need to pray for me or whoever's preaching to you on Sunday mornings that he would grant power and authority, that he would grant his spirit to preachers as he did to his son in days of old. We need to beseech God that we might preach not in word only, 1 Thessalonians 1.5, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. We need to notice the sermons Jesus preached and pray that they might be preached again in our midst. So then, we've made four observations about Jesus' day of protracted ministry in Capernaum. Each one of them is important, I think, and worthy of further consideration. But our time this morning permits us the opportunity of only looking more closely at two of them. So out of those four, let me just focus your attention on two. The signs Jesus performed and the sermons Jesus preached. That's what takes up the bulk of Luke's time in this section, and that's what's going to take up the rest of our time now. And what I want to do with the remainder of our time is to hold up these two parallel arms of Jesus' outreach to the world. They are parallel arms. Whenever you see Jesus reaching out in the villages, almost always you see both of these arms reaching out to people, the arm of preaching and the arm of miracles. So I want to hold both of these arms up and compare them and contrast them and notice how Jesus viewed their importance. And as we do, I hope we will see that both signs and wonders and sermons had and have their appropriate place in Jesus' mission to the world. That both are significant and wonderful in and of themselves. That there is a synergy between the two, that they work together. And also that there's a priority between the two as well. So signs and wonders and sermons, what can we say about it all and what can we learn as we seek to carry on Jesus' mission to our world. That last question is key. What can we learn? Because the events that we're looking at here are factual, historical events, yes, but this isn't a history class, is it? I'm not interested here in simply explaining what Jesus did and how he did it and what he taught 2,000 years ago. I am interested in that, but I'm also interested in looking at what Jesus did and taught 2,000 years ago so that we might know what he intends for us to do and teach here today. What can we learn from Jesus? How can we be like him? How can we carry out this mission that he began? What roles should signs and wonders and sermons have in 2009? in Cincinnati, at Pleasant Ridge Baptist Church? That's the question this morning. And so with that in mind, I want you to look closely with me now at signs, wonders, and sermons in Luke 4, 31 through 44. You may recall um, sitting in a high school art class where the teacher placed a piece of pottery or something like that on the table in the middle of all the class and said, now I want you to get out a blank sheet of paper and I want you to write down every single thing that you notice about that piece of pottery. She was trying to teach you not about pottery, but teach you to observe, teach you to see things, to notice detail. And that's what we need to do this morning. We need to look and we need to notice some detail. And so on Thursday afternoon, as I prepared, I I took a page out of the art teacher's book and I took a blank sheet of paper out and I opened up Luke 4, 31 through 44 before me on the table. And as I looked at it, I just began to scribble things down on the sheet of paper. What can we say about signs, wonders, and sermons from this chapter? And on that blank sheet of paper, I scribbled down five things. I'm only going to give you three of them this morning to save time. Actually, I'm going to give you all five, but I'm going to sneak two of them in under another heading so that it won't seem as long as it normally seems. So then, what can we say about the signs and wonders and sermons of Jesus as they apply to us as we carry out his mission in 2009. Three things, mainly. Number one, both signs and wonders and sermons demonstrate the power of Jesus. Both signs and wonders and sermons demonstrate the power of Jesus. Now, 
it's fairly elementary, I think, to say that signs and wonders demonstrate the power of Jesus. When a person is miraculously healed or when a person has been foaming at the mouth and throwing himself down on the ground in fits of rage and all of a sudden he becomes immediately totally sane, people sit up and notice. They say there's some sort of power here. Something happened. And if they recognize that these things were done in the name of Jesus, that the cancer is gone or that the demon is gone in the name of Jesus, then the people will say with the Capernaumites in verse 36, what is this message? For with power and authority he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. I think it's fairly obvious that signs and wonders demonstrate the power of Jesus. But may I say to you that we don't often look for that. We don't often pray for that. But if we would believe the Lord for miracles, he wouldn't be obligated to provide them. But he might just reward our faith. So before we read this and just say, oh, this is just a New Testament phenomenon. God doesn't really do these kinds of things anymore. We need to be careful. And we need to listen carefully to James, the brother of Jesus, when he tells us in James chapter 4, verse 2, you do not have because you do not ask. God's not obligated to do miracles But he does if we ask. So it's fairly obvious. Signs, wonders, they demonstrate the power of Jesus. But not everyone is quite so sure about sermons. Do sermons, does preaching demonstrate the power of Jesus? Is there anything inherently powerful about preaching? Many modern churchgoers would answer quite simply, no. And, and part of the answer would be, well, this is the era of technology. People's brains are differently now. They can't listen to someone talk for very long. We're more fast-paced. We're more visual. And so we need to probably do a little less preaching and a little more drama, a little more discussion. Maybe we need to have some graphics, some visual imagery, and all these things. But frankly, just standing up there and talking for 30 minutes, 45 minutes, that is very pedestrian. And that's obviously outmoded and it is singularly ineffective. That's what people say. Now, I confess, it may be true, it probably is true that we're in a visual culture, that people would rather look at something than read something or listen to something. I'm not saying that that's good, I'm just saying that's probably true. But does that mean that the modern conclusions about preaching are correct? That it's outmoded and that it doesn't, have the power of God with it inherently. Well, when we read the story of Jesus, when we look at the ministry of Jesus, we might have reason to pause before we make that conclusion. Because Jesus lived in an era where the visual was also quite popular. And Jesus lived in an era, as we see here, where people like to ooh and ah just as much as we do. I mean, they were amazed at these miracles, these visual signs that he did. And yet, in the midst of that kind of culture where the people would have much rather seen signs and visual things than to hear him stand there and talk for 40 minutes, in the midst of that culture, Jesus chose preaching sermons as the singular way in which he would communicate. He chose preaching as the singular way he would communicate God's truth to the people. And did it work? Well, look at verse 32 and judge for yourself. They were amazed at his teaching, for his message came with authority. Now, that's a significant statement by itself. The people were amazed at his teaching, amazed at his sermons, because it came with authority. But that's an even more uh, astonishing statement when we compare it with the response of the people to Jesus' miracles in verse 36. Amazement came upon them all, and they began talking with one another and saying, What is this message? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. Now listen to this. Luke uses the same three words to describe the effect of Jesus preaching as the effect of Jesus' miraculous signs and wonders. Amazement, message, and authority. Look at verses 32 and 36, and you'll see that. Amazement. Message and authority. The people said the same thing about his sermons as they said about his signs. The response was the same. 
In other words, Jesus' words, simple words from his mouth, had just as much power to wow the crowds and humble the crowds and amaze the crowds as his exercising of the demons and his healing of the sick. And that is amazing to me. That is absolutely amazing to me. If I stood up and preached a sermon, and then after my sermon, some demon-possessed person walked down the aisle and started rolling and flipping, and I cast out the demon, and they were in their right mind and sat down and had lunch with you, you would probably be more amazed at what you saw than what you heard. But it wasn't so with Jesus. They were just as amazed. They had the same response when they heard as when they saw. That's important to me. It speaks to me about my role as a preacher of the good news. That if I do this rightly, and if the Spirit comes and helps me, there is power when we open this book and someone stands and preaches it. And I mustn't abandon that calling in favor of a market-driven ministry or in favor of entertainment. God, in calling me to preach His Word, has put into my hands all the power that I need to help you to see and to know and be amazed at Jesus. And if people leave here unmoved or uninterested or wishing that I'd offered a skit instead of a sermon, then something's badly wrong. Either I have failed in not preaching as I should or the person has failed in not really listening. But either way, if someone leaves the preaching of God's Word is unaffected, then they haven't heard real preaching. They haven't heard real preaching. They've either heard poor preaching or they just haven't listened. But when the gospel is really preached in the power of the Spirit, the way Jesus preached it, no one is put to sleep. No one walks away unaffected or bored. And so I would just pause here and ask you, plead with you to pray for me. Pray for Charles and Keith when they preach to you. To pray for the other men who come in periodically and preach to you that God would grant us not just words, not just words, but power and the Holy Spirit and full conviction so that you would leave with power and the Holy Spirit and full conviction. If I do my job and you do yours as listeners, God has put potential for amazing, explosive power in our midst. Don't neglect that opportunity. Don't miss your spiritual meals. They can be powerful in your life. That doesn't mean you're going to leave every single Sunday absolutely flabbergasted by what you heard. But, as a friend in Mississippi told me last week, some meals you remember for the rest of your life. For instance, if you get to eat on a pier beside the ocean and the dolphins are jumping in the water... You remember that all of your life, right? Some meals are just good, nourishing, and vital, and indispensable, but not particularly memorable. You know, you eat cereal many times in your life, and you don't remember all the different bowls of cereal you ate. Some meals are memorable, and you always remember them, and some meals you just eat, and they help you, and you don't remember them. And so it is with preaching, she said. Not every sermon is going to be like a lightning bolt from heaven that just makes everything fit and work and you go through your week whistling and singing. But if the preacher is faithful, and if you are faithful to listen week by week with an open heart, the cumulative effect in your life will be health. It will be powerful. It will be amazing. So don't miss out on your spiritual meals. If God were demonstrating His power here week to week by casting out demons and healing the sick, you would either be glued to your seat every Sunday at 11 o'clock or you would run as far away from this place as possible. And I just suggest to you that if preaching has the same power and you will pray that it will in our midst, then our response should be much the same. Either glued to our seat or not able to bear it much longer. Both signs and wonders and sermons demonstrate the power of Jesus. Number two, both signs and wonders and sermons demonstrate the compassion of Jesus. Both signs and wonders and sermons demonstrate the compassion of Jesus. And again, I think this statement is fairly obvious when we look at the signs and wonders Jesus performed here. If someone is sick and you meet her need, then that's compassion. If a man is demonically oppressed and you cast out the demon, then he will be forever grateful for your kindness. 
And Jesus, the most compassionate person who ever lived, was certainly constantly putting his kindness on display in this way, wasn't he? In the large, public, rather awkward matter of a demon-possessed maniac rolling around in the service, Jesus showed compassion. He didn't just call the guys and say, throw that guy out of here. He showed compassion. And in the privacy of Simon Peter's home, when very few people were around to see it, and with something so small as a fever, verse 39, Jesus showed compassion. So whether it was male or female, or public or private, or a big thing or a small thing, or an awkward thing or a simple thing, Jesus was always acting in compassion. And whether God ever grants you to pray for and see a miracle, a bona fide miracle or not, it is your privilege and it is your duty to do the same, to do what Jesus did. So let me ask you, do you show the compassion of Jesus? to that awkward person, to that person who seems like their mind will never be straight and you're not even sure if maybe there is something demonic going on, do you show compassion to that person? Do you show compassion to the people at work who seem to be opposed to everything that Jesus is about? Do you show compassion in the difficult situations and in the big problems? And are you willing to go that far and put forth that kind of effort? That Jesus did. And furthermore, are you willing to stoop down and do the little things that don't seem like they would take a lot of effort but would just slow down your day? No one would have blamed Jesus if he had taken little or no notice of Simon's mother that day. After all, he's just preached a sermon, he's just come from the synagogue, and he's just cast out a demon, and now there are lepers and cripples and all sorts of sick people already staggering down the streets of Capernaum to ask for his help. And Simon's mother just had a fever. No one would have said anything to Jesus if he had simply passed by and never even noticed her virus or her flu bug or whatever it is that she had. But he did notice. Even in a small and comparatively inconsequential matter, Jesus stooped down and he showed his kindness. May God grant you to do the same. May God grant you faith to pray for miracles and may God grant you faith to do the small things even when there is no miracle, but there's just to show that you care. May he grant you faith to do something to show his love to the people who need it. So again, I say Jesus' miracles, Jesus' signs and wonders definitely demonstrated his compassion. That's a no-brainer. We see that, it's obvious. But I want to remind you that his preaching, his sermons had the same effect. Again, we don't always think of it that way. We may even say to ourselves, now the preaching is what we Christians go and listen to so that we can go out Monday through Saturday and show compassion. And that's true as far as it goes, but it's not the whole truth. There's not a dichotomy between preaching and compassion, or it isn't that just one leads to the other. For preaching itself was for Jesus and is for us an act of compassion by itself. Think with me. Isn't it merciful and good and compassionate of God to give us his word, to tell us what he thinks and to tell us how we should think and to tell us about his son and how we can be forgiven of our sins? Isn't that merciful of God to tell us? And therefore, isn't it compassionate when someone helps another person understand those things and apply them? And aren't people going to die and face judgment unless they hear and apply the good news to their lives? And if they are, isn't it compassionate of us to tell them? For you to preach a little mini-sermon to one of your co-workers over lunch? It may be interspersed with questions. It may not just be you talking for seven minutes solid. But isn't it compassion, compassionate when you speak, when you preach the gospel in your own sphere of influence? Of course it is. So don't ever make the mistake of thinking that preaching is just the religious thing we do to inform people about the truth, and then we show them compassion in other ways. No, informing people the truth about the truth of Jesus and God's love for sinners is compassionate. It is the most merciful and compassionate thing that we can ever do. That's why Jesus always mingled his signs and wonders with his sermons and vice versa. All of these things were accomplishing one and the same goal, both in Luke 4 and elsewhere. Jesus was showing compassion to distressed and needy people, both as he healed and as he preached. 
And let me say one other thing here about the relationship between acts of compassion and the compassion of preaching. That is, the first augments the second. The first acts of compassion augment the second. The preaching of compassion, or the compassion of preaching. That is, acts of compassion done in Jesus' name, whether they are miraculous or mundane, have the tendency to make people want to listen to what you say in Jesus' name. Let me say that again. Acts of compassion done in Jesus' name, whether they are miraculous or mundane, have the tendency to make people want to sit up and listen to what you say in Jesus' name. Acts of compassion augment compassionate preaching, the preaching of the gospel. In other words, though there is the potential for God's power and compassion to flow over the congregation every single time someone walks into this pulpit and opens this book, the people of Cincinnati aren't flocking in here to hear this, are they? They're not. Because they don't know that there's power in this book and flowing from the pulpit onto their lives. And so they don't come. They're not flocking here to hear the message, the only message that will save them. But what might make them flock in? The fanning out of God's people all over this city. Listening to their co-workers talk about their problems at home and then saying, why don't I pray with you about that? The people of God fanning out over the city and giving medical care in Jesus' name. The people of God fanning out over the city and being the first ones to volunteer to pick up a little extra slack at work when their co-worker is sick. Just as an act of love toward them. The people of God fanning out over the city and helping the elderly neighbors get their trash cans in and out on the appropriate day of the week. The people of God fanning out over the city and helping the single mother down the street with her kids. And so on and so on and so on. If people know whom you serve and they see how you serve, namely unstintingly and with great love for them, then some of them will begin to ask the question, why you serve. And then you get to share with them the good news of Jesus with your lips. If people know whom you serve and they see how you serve, they will eventually begin to ask why you serve. And then you get to open your mouth with the good news of Jesus, the words of God's compassion, and you might see them be saved from their sins. So acts of compassion, whether miraculous or mundane, often make way for words of compassion that people are dying without. Number three, in day-to-day ministry, preaching was Jesus' main priority. In day-to-day ministry, preaching was Jesus' main priority. Now, I say preaching was Jesus' main priority day-to-day because there were moments in time where other things took precedent. For instance, when Simon's mother was sick in bed, What she didn't need right that moment was a sermon. What she needed was healing. Or when the demon was rolling around in the aisles, what he didn't need right then was a sermon. Jesus stopped what he was doing and cast out the demon first and then probably finished his sermon. You could turn over to Luke 7 and see the widow at Nain whose son had died and the funeral processions going down the street. And she surely needed to hear the gospel. But the need of that very moment was for Jesus to give life to her son. And then she could hear the gospel. So there were immediate moments in time where preaching was not the main priority, but healing or resurrection or whatever it was. And there are numerous situations like that in Jesus' life, most notably the cross, right? In those final moments and hours of Jesus' life, the need of the day was no longer preaching, but dying for our sins so that we would have something to preach from generation to generation. So moment by moment, preaching was not always at the top of Jesus' priority list. But as we follow his routine day by day in the larger chunks of time, for three years of ministry, we see that preaching was really always at the top of his agenda until it was time to die. Preaching was always from day to day the first thing that he intended to do. Now, how can I say that? We'll just look at the passage before us this morning. What was the first thing Jesus did when he came into the fishing village of Capernaum? He didn't walk into town and begin looking for someone to heal, did he? 
No, his first action was to go into the synagogue and look for people to whom he could preach, verses 31 and 32. He did healing, but the healing came about as a result of necessity and circumstance, and he was glad to do it. And he even set aside his preaching for a few moments to do it. But his settled plan, his settled purpose when he came to Capernaum was the preaching. And then the same was true when he left Capernaum in verses 43 and 44. He left because he says, I have to preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also. For I was sent for this purpose. Now that last little clause is important. I was sent for this purpose. When we ask ourselves, what was Jesus' top priority in ministry? As he walked around Galilee and Judea, what we now call the nation of Israel, as he walked around that area for three years, what was his top priority? And the end of verse 43 43 tells us, doesn't it? I was sent for this purpose. For what purpose? To preach the kingdom of God. That's an amazing sentence. It's an amazing sentence because when we read the Gospels, don't we often take most notice of the miraculous things that Jesus did? I mean, if you talk to someone, that's their average experience. Someone at work says to you, I'm going to start reading the Gospels. I'm going to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so they finish and they say, I finished the Gospels. And you say, you finished the Gospels. Yes, I did. But what stood out to you the most? It was amazing. All the miracles Jesus did. I mean, he was healing the sick. He was giving sight to the blind. He was making lame people walk again. He was casting out demons. He even raised a couple of people from the dead. It was the miracles that really jumped off the page at me, they will probably say. And we should notice the miracles, and they should jump off the page at us. We should be with the people of Capernaum amazed by them. But as amazing as they are, verse 43 says that when Jesus came... It wasn't mainly, first of all, to show his miraculous power, but it was mainly to preach the kingdom of God. The miraculous power surely augmented that. It made people want to listen to what he said. But his main purpose, his main goal was preaching. This is why I've been giving so much time and emphasis to preaching this morning. Not because I don't believe in signs and wonders. I do. And certainly not because I want to de-emphasize the acts of compassion that Jesus did and that we must imitate. And not because I myself am a preacher and so I just want to talk about preaching all morning. Rather, in spite of all the miracles and acts of compassion that we see here, I've given my attention to the topic of preaching because in spite of all the miracles and acts of compassion that Jesus did here, preaching is what he said he was supposed to do. Preaching is what he said he was sent to do. Preaching is what he said was central. Now, why was that so? Why did the Father send Jesus primarily on a preaching tour? We're not told in Luke 4. But when we look at Luke 4 and when we compare it with the rest of the New Testament, I think we can get a pretty good idea why preaching was the main priority. Preaching, more than healing the sick, more than raising the dead, more than casting out the demons, was the priority simply for this reason, I believe. Because preaching alone touches the soul. When we think of all the acts of ministry that we can do, preaching the gospel alone touches the soul. Miracles certainly touch the body. In fact, almost all the miracles that Jesus did touch people's bodies. Miracles can touch the mind as well, either freeing it from demonic oppression or making it think seriously about Jesus' identity, as happened in verse 36. Or making people wonder why it is that Christians do what we do. Preaching, or excuse me, miracles and acts of compassion can touch the mind. They can even touch the emotions. But no one will ever be saved from sin simply by observing Jesus' miracles, will they? For does not Paul say that it is the gospel, Romans 1.17, that is the power of God for salvation to those who believe? And how will people hear that gospel unless someone tells them? How will they hear Romans 10:14 without a preacher? And that can be either an ordained preacher in a pulpit or it can be a preacher who is a neighbor going to his going with his friend to the Reds game and sharing the gospel with him in the car on the way. It can be their kind of preacher, but how will they hear without a preacher? How will they hear if someone doesn't open his mouth? And faith which saves us comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Therefore, 1 Corinthians 1, God is well pleased through the message preached to save those who believe. 
That's why God sent Jesus mainly as a preacher because preaching, unlike any other show of compassion, even a miraculous show of compassion, preaching is aimed at saving the soul. Now it is said that small acts done with great love can change the world. Small acts. And that's probably true to a certain extent. But I remind you that Jesus wasn't charged simply with changing the world. He did that. But more than changing the world, Jesus was coming to change the complexion of heaven itself by bringing many sons and daughters to glory with him. And so Jesus had to do more than just acts of compassion with great love. He also had to preach. And if we're going to join him in changing the complexion of heaven, in bringing people to heaven with us, we ourselves have to open our mouths as well. We have to show compassion with our hands and feet but not just with our hands and feet, with our lips and our tongues as well. We have to, in our own little spheres of influence, preach the gospel to our city also. So let me ask you, is there someone to whom you need to be speaking? Someone perhaps whom you've loved and shown practical compassion again and again, as you should and should continue to do, but someone with whom you've been afraid to actually share the message of Jesus? Someone to whom you need to preach the gospel. Or is it for someone in this room maybe that you need to be the listener and I need to be the preacher this morning? If so, let me tell you that this church loves to meet physical needs and we could meet all sorts of needs. And some of you have seen that and been blessed by that. Physical, emotional, financial, and so on. And if there are needs like that this morning... Let someone know and we'll try our best to meet them again. But when we've tried our best, when we've done our best, and when God has met all of those needs, you may still be left without peace in your soul and without forgiveness of your sins and without assurance of heaven. Why? Because you don't need simply to get something. More importantly, you need to hear something. And this is what it is. God made you. And God has followed you and loved you all the days of your life. And God has given you everything that you ever had. Right down to the very air you breathe. And yet each of us knows in our heart of hearts that we haven't loved Him. And we haven't obeyed Him and we haven't lived for Him as we should. And therefore He has every right to be offended by you and to punish you forever. And yet, God in His amazing mercy has so loved the world, John 3.16, that He sent His only begotten Son into the world to die for sins, to take on the punishment that you and I deserve, so that if we would only turn from our sins and turn to Him, trusting His sacrifice as our only forgiveness and our only hope, God would forgive us, And God would cleanse us. And God would begin a new way of life in us that would last from now until eternity. That is the only message that can touch the soul. And that is the message this morning that some of us need to proclaim and others of us need to receive. Will you proclaim it? And will you receive it this morning? Will you receive Jesus this morning?